you want to reset your relationship with stress, you need to become Stress Teflon. I recently had the pleasure of going on the Body Science Podcast with its founder, Greg Young. We talked about all things Stress Teflon. So I guess my guest on the Reset Podcast today is me, Luke Mathers, talking to Body Science founder, Greg Young. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Body Science HQ, the world of COVID-19, fit, happy, healthy. We're all still living the life. And with me, the man that wrote the book, Stress Teflon, Luke Mathers. How are you, Luke? I'm very well, thanks, Greg. Really well. Nice to be here. Mate, I just want to rip in today and talk about what is Stress Teflon. Stress Teflon's a way of looking at stress so that it doesn't stick. Yep. So what do you mean by that? Well, one of the things that's happened with, you get so much bad press on something that you just assume that everything about it is bad. And if you talk about stress, people think think when you get stressed, you know, it's going to cause heart attacks. It's going to cause, you know, it's going to cause irritable bowel syndrome. It's going to cause everything from erectile dysfunction to, to strokes. And You've hit a few uh, big key, <laughs> keynotes here. Like you, didn't, you didn't miss much on that one. So. But it gets the blame for everything, all right? And so the hassle is when something gets the blame for everything, there can't possibly be anything good about it. So it ends up with this stigma associated that it's stress, it's got to be bad, and I've got to get rid of it. And I don't think that's true. I don't think it is the way. Without stress, we don't fire up. Without stress, we don't get stuff done without stress we don't climb new mountains and find new challenges and the hassle is if we bundle all of our stress into one thing to say it's bad then we're going to miss out on a lot of the joys of life and i think we've got to learn to sort of look at it through a slightly different lens and mate what is that slightly different lens i think one of the main thing we've got to try and do is is make sure we embrace it but also have ways to to get rid of it as well there's there's systems in the body that fire everything up and the hassle is that our our sympathetic nervous system which is the thing that makes everything fight or flight and makes everything fire up and get ready to go is on constant alert all the time. And the idea of stress Teflon is to use that when we need it and then let it go when it don't and, and work out ways to deliberately push the brakes and fire up the other system, which is your parasympathetic nervous system. And that's the one that does the calm and disarm and sort of, you know, rest and digest and, and calms everything down. And the hassle is that- Calm and disarm, rest and digest. You I got, love a bit you, of poetry. You got any other good ones in there? <laughs> yeah, there's a few there. We'll, we'll chuck a couple more in later on, mate. So no words like that to describe where we can be or where we should be or where we could be, why wouldn't we want to be there all the time? With stress? Yeah. It's a bit It's a bit like trying to run a car with your foot flat to the boards on the accelerator. You know, the engine's not going to handle it. You've mm-hmm. got to have those times where you come off and, and calm everything down. You've got to go to the mechanic occasionally and get it sorted out. You can't just spend your entire time with it, with your foot flat to the board in the car. And I, I guess with stress, it's kind of the same, that, that our lives have constantly got things coming at us. Every little distress that you have is just drip feeding another little bit of stress into your system. And the hassle is we're, we're drip feeding into a system that's already overloaded. So what we've got to do is work out our ways to fully embrace stress when we need it and we can utilize it and then work out how to how to calm the farm when we need to. So how does someone actually take that moment to work that out? I think probably the key is one of the ways that I like to look at it is to try and treat stress as a challenge rather than a threat. <laughs> and um, there's a thing that we talk about in the book called the fork in the stress road. And the fork in the stress road is really 
really, really important because what happens with your biology is if you treat stress as a threat, then you do get the, you know, you, stress is meant to make your heart rate go faster. It's meant to make your blood pressure come up. It's meant to pump blood to your muscles so you can run or you can punch on, you know, the, all of yeah. that fight or flight things, which I'm sure we all know all about. But one of the things that, that cortisol in particular, which is the, the main, you know, the superstar of the stress show, is that cortisol prioritizes different things. So it prioritizes the things that helps you run and punch on, but it also turns off things like your immune system. It turns off things like your digestive system. You don't need your hair to grow if you're if you're in a full-on stress state. All right. So there's lots of things that get deprioritized when you have stress. And you've got to have times where you turn those things back on. Otherwise, you don't fix the heart valve that needs fixing. You don't fix the, the knee joints that need fixing. You have a think about it. If, if there's a cyclone coming towards your house, you're not going to paint the fence. Yeah, exactly. Got All right. So the, your body deprioritizes a lot of things when you're in a constant state of stress. So nothing gets done. Nothing gets fixed. No maintenance gets done. You've got to have the swings and roundabouts and you've got to have the the, the fast and the slow. The hassle is that our life's just had too much fast and not enough slow. But we've got to learn to embrace the fast when it's the right thing to do and then deliberately put the brakes on when we need to do that as well. So looking at that concept, it's great being you when stress doesn't stick. Mm. What does that actually mean? Stress sticking is basically when it, it stays there and it doesn't go away. All right. So that, that whole, I'm not dealing with it well, things are ruminating around in your head and all of that sort of stuff. That's when stress gets sticky because what happens is things will, things will happen and it often happens when you go down that threat road in the in the fork in the stress road when you when you start feeling like you're under threat. Hang on, a fork in the stress road. Yeah, the fork in the stress road is basically when you come to something that's stressful, mm -hmm. it can either be a challenge or it can be a threat. Yep. When it's a challenge, you fire up, you get it done, you climb the mountain, you do whatever needs doing, you get to the end and go, that was great, <laughs> breathe out, everything's wonderful. No problems with things like your cardiovascular system with that, no problems with health problems when you have a challenge. You know, they're all just part of the deal and they're a good thing. It's what humans are designed for. Humans aren't designed to sit and marinate in stress. We're not designed to sit there and have it going the whole time. But unfortunately, there's a part of our brain called our prefrontal cortex, which in the book I call the new brain. And the new brain can constantly be feeding in little things like, have you paid the mortgage? Have you paid the school fees? Have you paid this? Are you worried about your boss is going to sack you? Or are you worried about COVID-19 at the moment? All of those things. And they never go away. They're not like a tiger that you get away from. They're constantly there. And um, that's when we start marinating in stress hormones and that's when it gets sticky. So when you go down the, the sort of threat road, okay, you know, when you go to the fork in the stress road and you go down the, the threat road, that's when it starts getting nasty. So what type of things are your book telling us we should do when we hit that fork? Wait is probably the, the first thing because one of the things that we do is we have a stress response and a stress response, your old brain gets the first crack at it. So our, our brains have gone on in layers, all right? And the old brain, which is right in the middle bit, which is called your limbic system, and it's, it's where all your fear lies, it's where all your memories lie and it reacts super quickly. You know, if you go to step on a snake and you see the snake, you'll jump away before you even realize you've seen it. It's super fast, but it's not very nuanced. It doesn't doesn't understand shades of gray. So the problem, the problem with that is it's either on or it's off. And if you take, I, I call the old brain gives you what we call a shitty first response. Yep. All right. And a shitty first response is often, if it's really reactive and it gets you away from a snake, Merry Christmas, it's great. But most of the time we get our first response and we just take that no matter what we don't stop and question it and that often takes us down that threat road
road. We, okay. we often take things as a threat when they don't necessarily mean to be. That's one of the big problems. So what we do is if we wait, and if you look at the, the word wait, W-A-I-T, stands for what am I thinking? And just asking yourself that question, what am I thinking? Why am I thinking it? And is it helping? And I love those three questions. What am I thinking? Why am I thinking? Why am I thinking it? And is it helping? What those two do is they connect that old emotional part of your brain and the smart, nuanced thinking part of your brain and you come up with the right decision where to go rather than just taking whatever the old brain threw at you in the first place and running with it. And so why is that so important? What's wrong with just running the old brain? Well, the hassle is that particularly when it's something that's not necessarily a threat, but we treat it as such, is we we go off on whatever that first reaction is. We run half a mile down the road with that reaction and then all we do is get to the end and sort of justify how we got there, right? One of the beauties of stopping before you go into a full-on stress response is that you make considered decisions and you're not going to do things that are going to add to the problem. You, know, you might have something like you know, you're know you about to go to work and you, you know, your daughter's just spilled orange juice all over your shirt, right? Your first response would be, blah, yell, scream, what are you doing? You're an idiot, blah, blah, blah. And then you've got all other problems that you've got to deal with. Whereas you just said that was an accident. You didn't mean it. That's all right. I'll go change my shirt. That problem's over. That stress hasn't stuck. You've just dealt with it and, and moved on. Mate, you go around a lot of companies and talk about stress. You do a lot of lecturing on stress. What's some of the big questions people ask you? Yeah, probably the, the biggest one, how do I sort of turn my brain off when I when it's when it's going overboard? And you know, that that problem of problems just ruminating around in your brain. Are we at the fork now? Are we past the fork? We're probably past the fork. One, what happens, the, one of the things that I point out in the book is that when you take the, the threat road, quite often you'll something will happen that will, will cause a, a stress response and then you'll get like knots in your stomach and you'll go, oh, the, I've got knots in my stomach. This must be really bad. And then you, you, your new brain feeds that and says, oh, if I've got knots in my stomach, then it must be super bad. And then all of a sudden you get into what I call an old brain shitstorm. And an old brain shitstorm is where you, you're just feeding the stress monster. You just, you're just pouring more and more stress into it. And the hassle with that is when you're in an old brain shitstorm, your new brain that does all the logical, smart thinking comes offline, doesn't work anymore. All right. And when that happens, then you often end up making decisions that compound whatever the stressful situation was in the first place. So to be able to sort of connect your two brains and make the smart part of your brain and the emotional quick thinking part of your brain work together to, to solve the problem before you end, end up in an emotional shitstorm. And do those two brains like talking to each other? <laughs> yeah, a lot of the time they don't. No, mm -hmm. they, they often work quite independently of each other. The, your prefrontal cortex, which is the, the part of the brain as we've evolved, which was the last one to get. You know, you know, we've, we have common ancestors with things like chimpanzees and monkeys and stuff like that. They don't have a prefrontal cortex. Okay. So they don't have that, that ability to plan. An ability to plan is an, an awesome thing because what happens is a, a monkey can't plan for unfelt needs. All right. If a monkey's got a whole bunch of food in their cage and they'll eat enough and they're hungry, they're not hungry anymore, they'll throw the food around, they'll do whatever. They won't think that some stage down the track they're they going to be hungry be again. Yeah. All right. Okay. They don't they can't they can't think about unfelt needs. We've got this lovely prefrontal cortex that lets us plan to think, okay, well, I'm not going to throw that banana at my mate over there. I'm going to hang on to it because later on today I'm going to be hungry. All right. That's a new brain thought. Monkeys don't have that. Okay. All right. But that same new brain thought can start making up stories. It's a it's a, a kind of 
simulation machine. It can sort of find out, well, which way can this go? And it can make up lots and lots of stories and, and lots of what ifs that can, that can cause a lot of problems. A great story, a mate of mine's really scared of heights. All right. He's absolutely petrified of heights. He reckons he gets nervous on thick pile carpet. All right. So he's really scared of heights and he did this did this thing with his 13-year-old son where they abseiled down the side of the building. And he's at the top of this building absolutely packing it. He's absolutely petrified. And his son's there playing with his phone and mucking around as 13-year-old kids do. And he's going to him, look, how are you so calm here? We can have climbed down off this building. And the son's got him over kicking and screaming to the edge and made him look down. And people have been going down this building all day. It was a raising money thing. And look down the bottom there, Dad. There's no red splats on the ground. No one, no one's let go. No one's fallen from a grave height. No one's killed themselves. You're going to be all right. And I really love that kind of idea of, are you red splatting? Are you catastrophizing something? Are you thinking of something that might possibly go wrong? And the more you talk yourself into it, it's definitely going to go wrong. That idea of catastrophizing, because what that does is your new brain can pull that out whenever it likes. You know, it's not like it, the, you see a tiger in the forest and you react to it and then it's over. Your new brain can keep pulling that thing that you're catastrophizing and red splatting about. And I think that's one of the things that we need to be really careful of are we are we red splatting and you know my wife and I actually use that as a, a term in our house you know uh, am I red splatting over this and one of the cool things about that is when you are in that little old brain shitstorm and your emotional brain's going overtime and you're not thinking as well as it could it's a really nice thing to have someone that you can sort of outsource your new brain to I really like that idea is and to recognize that you know I'm I'm rolling stuff around in my head that's probably not helping so if you've got stuff that's rolling around in your brain and it's not helping then to be able to outsource it to someone else who's, who's not in that old brain shitstorm who can actually make a smart decision and sort of help you calm your farm. You know, having that other person that you can go to and you know, hopefully that's someone like a, a husband or a wife or, or one of your mates is a really cool thing to add as well. Yeah, nice. Mate, in the book, you talk about carrots and sticks. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be honest, I didn't get a gig until chapter five, but <laughs> it's a pretty cool part of your book. Yeah, it is. There's a thing in psychology called operant conditioning, all right? And operant conditioning is Basically, it, it's almost like the you know how humans learn and and how human motivation works. If something feels good, you want to do it again. All right. I don't think the human race would be around too much if if sex felt terrible. Yeah. Right. Sex felt wonderful. Let's do that sex thing again. That was great fun last yeah. time. So we we like to go towards and repeat things that felt good. We like to go away from things and don't want to repeat things that feel bad. You know, right now I want to ask you, what's the sex life of a monkey like? <laughs> With only an old brain? <laughs> I, I think... Um, I'm going to eat as much as I can and just throw the rest of the bananas and, around anyway. Just get on the job. Yeah, I'm just going to get on it and have a crack. Like, But mon monkeys can only feel the needs that they're feeling at the moment. If they're feeling horny, they'll get on it. If they're not yeah. feeling horny, they won't. But the thing about carrots and sticks and, and what I what I pull out in the book is what are some of the hormones that do that? The the star of the show, the you know, the biggest the biggest stick is cortisol because cortisol is the star of the, the, the stress show. So why calling it a stick? Well, basically, if you imagine, if you imagine the the, you know, the Mexican donkey and the and the guy has a stick with a carrot dangling off uh, the edge you, of it. Yep. All right. So yep. cortis cortisol does two things. It's the stick in this situation. All right. So cortisol gives you direction. All right. Because remember, if something's stressful, you're going to move away from it, and other things you're going to move towards it. But what cortisol can also do is you can give the donkey a, a hit on the ass to get it to move. So 
stress fires you up. You mm. need it. So yep. without it, you you know you can be stuck in inertia <laughs> and never go anywhere. So cortisol's there to sort of that feels stressful. Pay attention to something. And there's a lot of people who are getting really worried about things like anxiety. And anxiety is a massive problem, particularly in COVID nineteen world. And anxiety is basically your body telling you to pay attention. Your brain's saying, "Look, there's something here. We're not dealing with something I don't know. Something unknown. Something scary. You got to pay attention." The hassle yeah. is that we've kind of looked at it as it's we've been told it's bad anxiety I have anxiety yeah anxiety is not something you have not uh, most of the time it's just something you experience does anyone not have anxiety no we all have it exactly. yeah you know the you know homo erectus that never got anxious about things got dead yeah he didn't contribute to it evolution yep. yeah as far as the carrots and sticks and then we look at things we look at things like you know dopamine and serotonin and oxytocin which are, all sound like really big words that work great but you know dopamine's your drive to thrive we're going to have a bit more poetry because I know mm-hmm. you like that but dopamine's your drive to thrive hormone it's it's the thing that keeps you focusing on something that you need and it can work really really well and keep you on track to get the stuff you need it's also the basis of things like addiction and stuff like that so you know there's there's two sides to a lot of these things that feel really good and dopamine is one of those if you don't have dopamine your life is miserable you go searching and being on it you know looking for dopamine the whole time and you have you can have problems with things like addiction to you know gambling and drugs and food and sex and all of those other things so it's the uh, rock star of of hormones going on in your body. Mm-hmm. So dopamine was the first one? The other one we talk about in there, and, and dopamine's very much a, about you one. It's a very much, it's it's only about you. I want to get my food. I want to get my sex. I want to get my my little hit of feeling good. And dopamine feels good. So if you were a caveman and you saw an apple tree up in the distance, right, dopamine would go, well, you, you'd see the apple tree and your dopamine system would go, there's an apple tree over there. You should go get some apples. You're hungry. As you get closer, you get another little squirt of dopamine. As you get closer, you get another little squirt of dopamine until you get to the apple tree, grab up an apple, have a bite. Great. So dopamine makes you pay attention. Kids with ADD, ADHD don't have a very good dopamine system. So they okay. don't stay focused. You've heard of kids getting Ritalin, right? They give they give kids Ritalin. Other people use Ritalin as a party drug. What Ritalin does is increases to amplifies your the the sort of messages going on in the dopamine pathway, right? Which makes kids have enough dopamine to actually pay attention. People people who have a normal dopamine response take those same drugs and they're, you know, whoop, whoop and partying and dancing around with hot pants on. Yeah, gotcha. You know what I mean? So another one is Parkinson's disease. In Parkinson's disease, the dopamine pathways don't work properly so they can't stay focused on things. They can't even stay focused enough to make their body move the way they want to do it. So all of those things rely on dopamine. Lots of cases of people who have had trouble with addiction, particularly to drugs, just cooking their dopamine pathways. They get like a Parkinson's-like response. They might only be in their 20s and 30s, but they're getting a Parkinson's-like response because their dopamine pathways don't work well. So we need dopamine. It's a really, really important thing, right? But it's something that we've got to be wary that we're not totally searching for it all the time because it it is the, you know, the rock star of addictions and and all that sort of stuff. Cocaine is probably the the most common drug for giving you a release of dopamine. And why, you know, people who take cocaine, apparently it makes them feel like superheroes. In your book, you talk about stress inducers. Is this a a warning chapter for us or what is that? Yeah, so dopamine is very much a, a personal one. It's all about you, what makes me feel good, what gives me what I want. One of the things about humans is that we're social, which is why it's such a big, tough thing at the moment where everyone's having to, to do the social distancing and we're not being able to see people the way we normally do and all of that sort of stuff. It's really hard because there's a couple of other things that make us feel good and make us want to repeat things. And they're chemicals like serotonin. Serotonin, if you ever, most antidepressants now are what we call a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, things like Prozac and stuff like that. And serotonin is that thing that gets released when 
you feel proud of yourself. So you you stand up on the on the dais and you get your gold medal. You go, oh, that's great. I feel awesome. It feels great. And you think of carrots and sticks. Something feels great. You want to do it again. I really want to go back. You know, you look at Michael Jordan and the last dance. He wanted to go back and get another you know ring for winning the the NBA. All right. So you want to do them again. All right. So, but serotonin's a little bit different in that you it's a more of a communal thing. If you watch your son get up on the dais and and win a medal or get a academic award at school or something like that, you get a hit of serotonin. That's sort of, you know, where your head tilts to the side slightly and you go, oh, oh that's so good. And so it, nice. it's a little warm, fuzzy feeling yeah. and lovely. That's serotonin. And people with depression often don't have much serotonin and they don't get that pride from inside. What am I doing to my serotonin when I quickly go for these really good moments happening and I quickly go for my phone and go, oh, I better video this or take a picture of this? Yeah, I think you're then swapping, you're swapping your serotonin for dopamine because okay. phones are little dopamine dispensing machines. That's what they do because remember dopamine is your is your thing that something good might be happening yeah. all right that's what dopamine does it says something good might be happening so i might pull out my phone and it has a, a text message to say you've just won a million dollars it might be you know your dad just died you don't know you know what i mean but the the unknown is actually something that fires up your dopamine system and makes it that little bit more addictive as well they've done studies on dopamine levels with people who are problem gamblers and they've discovered that they get more dopamine when they get three out of four on a slot machine or a poker machine than if they actually win. So that sort of idea that the reward's coming. Oh, there. It's coming. It's coming. It's actually be bigger. Look how close I am. Exactly. It's actually a bigger thing. Whereas serotonin is much more of a communal thing. Mm-hmm. It's a thing that that pulls tribes together. Isn't that awesome? We all got together and killed the wildebeest and you know our tribe got to eat today. So yeah. you know, it's, it's a much more communal thing. The other communal one is oxytocin. Oxytocin is like the cuddle hormone. It's the, it's the thing that makes you feel really good when you hug someone and we've all got a big depletion in oxytocin at the moment in COVID-19 world because we're not getting to hug, we're not getting to shake hands, we're not getting those physical connections with people. But oxytocin is a weird one because it's actually part of the stress response. Uh, If you listen to Harvard psychologist Kelly McGonigal, she's really good at this sort of stuff and what she describes is that when something stressful happens, if if your stress system's working properly, you'll get the cortisol, you'll get the adrenaline, but you'll also get the oxytocin because the idea of that from a caveman point of view is it was meant to make you pull the people close to you closer all right and so one of the things about oxytocin is when it works properly it's great you know something stressful happens i really want to ring someone who i love and know and and it helps it out the problem is if you had a childhood or if you've grown up in a place where you didn't get that love and you didn't get that responsiveness that oxytocin is there for it actually has a reverse effect so it's it's one of those sort of chemicals that can have a bit of a two-edged sword that one and a lot of it depends on what you've sort of grown up with and what your reaction to oxytocin is. Interesting play, these hormones. They're just different levels of everything going all the time. So none of them are sort of cut and dried. So, mate, that's probably enough about the chemistry and the behavior. Let's get into the real good stuff. You've got in your book, The Greeks Worked It Out. What did they work out? <laughs> the Greeks are awesome. Let's face it, anything that we start talking about and any person that says they know anything, you, know, you can probably take it back to Socrates, Plato and Aristotle. You probably throw in maybe Buddha and Jesus and a couple of others in there. Don't and not- know how many of them are all Greek though, Luke. No, they're not the Greeks. But almost every smart thing that's been said in the last couple of thousand years has come down to those guys. They were, they were super smart. And one of
one of the things I get really frustrated with is we don't have words for certain things, all right? And there's a word that I've, I've kind of linked in with stress Teflon and it's called eudaimonia. And eudaimonia is, it's a Greek word that basically means good spirit. Good spirit. Good spirit, all right? And what, what eudaimonia means is that objectively flourishing, that well-being, that feeling good, but not just feeling good because you've hit your KPIs, but do, doing good because you're, you're a good person and you're doing the right thing and you're living a life of virtue. So it's sort of- Okay, map that out for me. What does that mean? I guess the, the main thing that they're talking about with eudaimonia is it's not outward things. It's things that you're doing to help other people and you're so living a life So getting that sports car isn't going to be the end of the world when it comes to that? Getting the sports car will make you feel good for a little while, little but while. it's not going to give you eudaimonia. Yeah, helping other people get stuff will give you eudaimonia. Living a life of virtue. And there's a, there's a line in it called objectively flourishing. Objectively uh, flourishing. I like that. But you can't argue with something that's objectively flourishing. All right, you can say that, you know, I've just bought a really nice new BMW, but it's not as good as a Ferrari. You know, Fair enough, yeah. So th- there's that comparison. We have that that sort of compare and despair thing that goes on a lot, particularly with things like social media and the fact that we can see ev- how everyone else is going and we're constantly comparing ourselves to them. What is platforms like Instagram and Facebook, especially Insta with the photos where it all counts, mm-hmm. what is that doing to us? It's it's definitely firing up that compare and despair part of our human and psyche. And that's a bad thing? Yeah, it, it's, it's a bad thing once it gets past a certain way. You know, yeah. giving, giving you that sort of drive to, yes, I want to get a little bit further and gives you that drive is good, but the hassle is it's it's just constant. And remember, you're always getting that highlight reel of people's lives. Yeah. You know, people aren't showing themselves doing the dishes on Instagram. You know, people aren't showing the, the day-to-day drudgery. They're only showing you their highlight reel. So you're comparing your life, which you're living 24-7 with someone else's highlight reel, and it's always going to come up short. So, you know, things like just limiting your amount of time on that sort of stuff is, is really, really important. The other thing about it, the reverse side of compare and despair is gratitude. And one of the things that we've really got to stop and think about is what are we grateful for? We're superbly grateful to live in a country like Australia at the moment, you know, with a government that's looking after us the way it did. We're going to be paying for it forever, but they're looking after us spectacularly well. We haven't got a, you know, a health system that's that's getting swamped like they are in the UK and the US and stuff like that. There's so many things that we should be grateful for. But yet if you're if you're constantly in that mode of compare and despair, you're going to be thinking to yourself, I haven't got enough. I'm not good enough and all of that sort of stuff. And I think that's something that does make stress stress stick. So to sort of catch yourself when you're comparing and despairing and then have a think about the things that you actually are grateful for, the people in your life that are grateful for, the things that you do have rather than the things that you don't. And what are some of the ways you, when you one-on-one with executives in that, obviously executives have bottom lines, KPIs, ROIs, all those little things you see on the bottom of uh, people's posts these days mm-hmm. to say how good they're going, add the word hustle in there as well. What are you telling executives to do outside of those givens that they have to do as part of their employment capacity in the company they're in? Yeah, I'm probably not their go-to one for the employment capacity. No, I'm, I'm not talking I'm about that. I'm talking about what are you telling people to do outside of those? Yeah, you know? I, I think one of the one of the main things is to be able to go into whichever part of your world you're going into in the right frame of mind. There's a guy called Adam Fraser who does a lot of work at Deakin University and he, he has a, a book called The Third Space, which is wonderful. And what it teaches is that if you're, say you're the CEO and you're having to kick ass all day and do whatever you do and then you go home and you're still that same personality you're not going to be a real good husband no yeah there's stories of people who or are wife, or wife or sorry wife, Luke, 2020. there's stories of people who are training for the olympics and i can't remember her name marion jones i think it was was training for the olympics and she was so dedicated in what she did and she was just focused and just an absolute machine when she got home she stayed like that and then made it really really hard and she said it's it's impossible to keep that up forever so to actually train 
transition from I'm going to be CEO, mum or dad, and then going to I'm going to be home person is a really important thing to do that sort of stuff deliberately. So I get that theory. So what are you getting me to do? In those situations? Yeah, what's my program here? Is to to create sort of transition times, mm-hmm. tra- to create a transition, use that time between going from, you know, if you're driving home from work and you're driving home from work yelling at your sales execs while you're getting home from work, when you're walking home, you're still in work mode. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, so switch, switch your phone off, put some music on, put a podcast on, do something that gets your brain in a different frame of mind so that when you go into the next stage you're in, you're in the right, you're in the right headspace to be the best dad you can be or to be the best mate you can be or yeah, it might be I've just done something really nice at my kid's school and now I've got to go into work and sack five people. Now you've got to get in the right headspace for a lot of those sorts of stuff. The three things that I've sort of pulled up with stress Teflon is that you need the safety of a tribe, right? That's the first one. Yeah. Outside of work. Outside of work, everywhere. Yep. We need the safety of a tribe yep. and you can't just, that's not one or two people. You need, you know, you need people who you love and you love them and who have your back, all right? So that's massively important. You need pride from contributing. And I, I called it pride from contributing in the book and, you know, whenever you write these things you always think could I go a different way later on I actually really love the idea of pride of purpose that you know the world's a slightly better place because I'm in it so doing something to help others doing something to help others just the the world's got to be a slightly better place because you're in it if it's not then you know what's the point all right and that's one of the things that I think has been really hard in this COVID-19 thing everyone thinks oh the government's going to give me some money and I'm just going to stay at home and watch Netflix I was listening to a a podcast today that was talking about what's going to happen they're talking about flattening the curve for for COVID-19, what's going to happen to our mental health curve with all of this? And part of that is because people don't have a, the pride from contribution. You know, things are going to get, stress is going to stick because they, they're not actually contributing and they're not feeling good about themselves. One of my favorite lines is, you know, no one disappoints me like I disappoint myself. Mm-hmm. And I say that a lot. It's, it's, it's normally yeah. when I do something stupid. But there's something about feeling like you're not making a contribution to the world that I think actually really does make stress stick. So our last one in our in our sort of foundations of stress Teflon is honest self-awareness to actually look at self in the room of mirrors and own your good bits, you know, do what you can about improving your bad bits, but, you know, accepting who you are with that constant improvement in the background the whole time. And I think one of the biggest thing that causes stress to stick is when people bullshit to themselves that, you know, things are okay and they're doing the right thing when they know damn well they're not. So they're having the honest self-awareness. So when we try and work out what the foundations of both eudaimonia, that sort of objectively flourishing and stress Teflon is, I think if you have the safety of a tribe, you have the pride from contributing to it and you're not bullshitting yourself, then I don't think stress sticks. Yeah, nice call. Is that hard to um, actually implement for the CEO, the management or even just people you know? It is a little bit when they're when the thing that they know is the right thing is the hard thing. I think that's always a tough one that, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this because it fixes X, Y and Z, but it's not the right thing to do. And I think that's when you run into the problem of stress sticking with the self-awareness part of it, that you're doing things that don't agree with your you know with your values and your principles i think that's that's something that certainly makes stress a bit sticky and is that that chapter 10 you talk about when you talk about a look in the room of mirrors yeah it is a little bit one of the things about a room of mirrors is that you see yourself from all different angles and you know we you know humans will will rationalize things there's a a thing in psychology called cognitive dissonance and cognitive dissonance is that thing where you know say you're you're trying to lose weight and while you're eating the mars bar you're telling yourself i'll go to the gym tomorrow and that's all right that's sort of yeah we've all 
build on that. And that, that's what cognitive dissonance is, is that the thing I'm doing and the thing I'm wanting and believing aren't, aren't in the grants. So I'm going to do whatever I can to, to make it okay. And most of the time that's telling yourself stories. Yeah, okay. You're going to tell yourself stories to make it okay to do the thing that goes against what you, what you believe in. And if you're doing that, then you haven't got on a self-awareness. You're bullshitting yourself. And those things come back to bite you. So, mate, why is, um j- just in wrapping up with your book and Stress Teflon, why is evolutionary biology so important to this book and what because you've spoken about a lot of things that didn't have cavemen in it yeah or cave people i suppose we should say mate, the original title of the book was actually called the caveman advantage mm. when i wrote it someone smarter than me said no one wants to read about cavemen so i said okay well what's the main thing and main thing i'm, I'm trying to get across and i guess the the gist of the book is that you know we don't have a we don't have a manual for how we work i mean you, you get a manual when you buy a new car you don't get a manual for humans and so to understand that this is how we've developed through thousands of years of evolution and this is how our brain works and this is how our bodies work and this is how the chemicals in there work. I think if you have a little bit of knowledge of that stuff, that stuff's all made for an environment that's completely different. The problems are completely different. The dangers are completely different. The threats are completely different. But if we understand how they work, then we can try and work out how that, you know, thousands of year old system that we all have, how that fits into a modern environment. And I think that's a really important thing. Mate, just in closing this down, it's, but that's been a fun little chat. Is there anything from your time post writing the book and your time with all the people you speak to and people you're mentoring that you can share with us that might be a great way to leave this? I think one of the things we're looking at at the moment is is to be able to reset your system, to be able to stop and say, okay, things are going things are going pear shaped. I'm in a really stressful situation. I'm in that old brain shitstorm where my emotions and my biology aren't working for me. How do I stop? And one of the things that I've got I've got in the next book that we have coming along and we're to, we're talking to people a lot about this at the moment is is a thing called reset and reset if your computer stuffs up and the and the little loop starts spinning around we hit control alt delete and control alt delete will stop your computer shut it back down and then you can start it up again and and have a clean slate mm-hmm. and it's a really cool thing the control alt delete and i've kind of turned it into three questions what can i control what should i change and what do i have to delete all right and the delete might be things i'm thinking it might be people in my life it might be actions that I'm doing that aren't helping the situations. And if you ask yourself those three questions, you kind of connect that old emotional brain and that smart, nuanced thinking brain and come up with a good answer for what you're going to do. So just to have those little moments in your day that you pause and sort of say, okay, am I going in the right way here? Ask yourself some of those questions, connect your two brains, and then you'll come up with answers that are going to make, give you solutions that are going to make stress not stick. Nice. Well, the book is called Stress Teflon. It was written by Luke Mathers and he had a co-author we should probably drop a little line in about. Dr. Mick Zelko, he's a cognitive neuroscientist. So he basically makes really, really hard things. He gets them to the point where I can understand them and hopefully I can get them to the point where everyone everyone can understand them. So yeah, he's, he was a great, he was a godsend to have on this. For is the he part of your second book, Reset? Yeah, he is. Yeah. Nice. Well, Luke, you can get Luke's book. You can download it on... LukeMathers.com.au or on Amazon. Perfect. And uh, for all you people out there that are wondering, is it a good read? It actually is a good read. I've read it. I enjoyed the book. Thank you very much. And uh, Luke's done a lot of work in our office with our team around stress testosterone theories, and uh, it's something that, that people really love. So have a listen, jump on his website, reach out to him. He's one of those people that's got a lot of time. He'll answer you. <laughs> <laughs> At the moment. And uh, we'll rock on from there. Thanks for coming on board, mate. I really appreciate it. Pleasure, mate. It's been fun. Okay, bye.